My name is Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this is my podcast, Lost in the Rabbit Hole, The Dark Side of Folktales. I have a doctorate in mythological studies and a master of fine arts and creative writing, but long before any of that, I've loved folktales. Folktales, fairy tales, myths, legends, urban legends, all things story. And this is a podcast about some of the lesser known things, the hidden things, the things found deep inside of tales that we perhaps unknowingly give over to our children. But these stories, they never let us fully go. They haunt the corners of our dreams, stalk us in our fantasies. We can't shake them loose. And the rabbit hole, it's just an ordinary thing. We pay no mind to it sitting out there in the corner of the garden or the middle of a field or maybe tucked into the roots of a tall tree. We pay no mind to it at all. That is, until we fall in. Join me as I lose myself in this unknown space, this place, this rabbit hole, and rediscover so many of the things left behind. But before we begin, I want to give a warning. I will be talking about the grotesque, foul, horrific things left out of children's versions of folktales. There is violence in these stories and broken societal taboos. If you are at all vulnerable to such information, please turn back. Welcome to part two of They Ride, We Hide, episode four of the Lost in the Rabbit Hole podcast. In part one, I told you about the folkloric frame of the wild hunt and shared some of the more recognizable tales and variations. I skirted around the traditional, as in what Jacob Grimm wrote in his encyclopedia called German Mythology, and teased that there might be more to this frame or or trope or theme, however you think it should be designated. I've often wondered about historical events like the Dance Macabre or some of the other packs of dancing skeletons and dead that crop up in cultural folklore. Is it possible that happy packs of revelers, say at Carnival or maybe a celebration of the Lord of Misrule, is it possible that they're a counterbalance to the ill-omened or at least more somber packs of non-reveling dead. Well, I guess whether they're reveling or not is dependent on how they see what they're doing. (laughs) But can we say that there's a similar frame across any kind of skeleton dancers and demon hunts? In part two, I want to show you some of the other tales that have gangs of hunters some mindless, some with a purpose, who come out late at night, often on specific nights, and hunt down their prey. And their prey might just be you. There's a legend from the Hawaiian islands of the Huka Aipo, or Hawaiian night marchers. These are the spirits of Hawaiian ancestor warriors who are said to rise up from the burial sites or to come from the ocean marching into the hills or marching to where they died. It starts on a lonely night. A conch shell calls out across the ocean, pleading to the stars. And that's when the phantoms emerge. They carry weapons and torches, and it's said that they can be seen through the mists as lights moving in regimented lines up and up and up into the sky. 
Their steps make a thunderous noise, the whole island shaking and quaking as they march, although their feet never touch the ground. It's also said that their drums and chanting can be heard not only all over the island, but from one island to another. And they will march sometimes from sunset until sunrise. While they're here, they collect up the newly dead to take back with them to the underworld. But beware of trying to catch a glimpse, for none who have have survived to tell the tale. What about a different kind of parade of reveling monsters, ghosts, demons, and other bogies? One of the oldest kinds of wild hunts, likely older than the ancient Greek, is the Night of 100 Demons in Japanese myth and folklore. The Night of 100 Demons is an English translation for Hayaki Yako, which are the fantastic tales of Japanese yokai and oni. The translation, though, is a little problematic if we're being very precise. So, yokai is loosely translated as spirits, often but not always angry spirits. Or this word is sometimes translated as demons and other bogies. Oni are a kind of yokai, um, but they're more like trolls or ogres, or here in the West, what we would think of as demons. There are some historians that say the tales may actually come from other older Chinese folklore, too. Unlike many of the European wild hunts, the Japanese tales take place mostly in the summer, frequently associated with the festivals of the dead. But then there's one specific story that may or may not have originally happened at the end of October, which is when there's a parade held in Kyoto every year celebrating this lore. These aren't just any bogies, though. In Japanese folklore, there are processions of horrifically and grotesquely altered household items. No household item is exempt. Elizabeth Liliho tells that, according to Japanese legend, these objects—musical instruments, kitchen utensils, religious paraphernalia, clothing, armor, and so on—they survive for a hundred years and then change into animate beings. She says, unhappy at having been discarded, the now transfigured objects commit all sorts of pranks, some mischievous, others hostile. In some cases, they even consume their human prey. The objects, you see, they grow a, a kami, or a spirit. And with a kami, the ordinary items become self-aware, and they're called skumogami. The household items, the tools and objects, they're alive. It's sort of a velveteen rabbit kind of deal, but more than Mrs. Potts with Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Although there is a well-known Japanese folktale about one haunted tea kettle, so maybe Disney did some borrowing. <laughs> we begin long, long ago on a beautiful day in the city of Kyoto, when all of the residents decided this was the day for major house cleaning and home repairs. Windows were thrown open, linens washed, and rugs beaten. Neighbors called out to one another as they tossed onto the street their broken and unused items. They hummed or even sang as they worked, gossiping over fences and paying no mind to the piles of unwanted items set out for the man with the cart to come and take away. 
But these household items were not just any regular or mundane objects. They were well-used, much-needed household items. These household items had been handled so often that they had developed a kami. They had become skumogami. And the skumogami were so incredibly sad that they were being thrown out without even a thank you. A shoe brush said to a drinking cup, How can my master no longer need me? I have cleaned his shoes even with only three bristles left. And the cup replied, And I can still hold the tea if only my mistress tips me a little to the side. A nearby rug cried out, I've lain across their floors for generations, and now they say I'm not fit to walk on just because there's holes where their feet most tread. From another pile, a broom moaned to a paper lantern. A sword wept to a broken pot. All of them, every last one, agreed that this was unfair. As they sat, their kami grew stronger, and they became angry. And their anger made them even stronger still. In groups of three and four and more, they stood up. Some realized that they could fly. But others could only drag themselves and needed the help of those more mobile. They made their way to the mountains. And as they traveled, their shapes changed, taking on monstrous features and dimensions. Some sprouted horns, others tails. Some grew arms and legs, but they had claws instead of hands and fingers. Some of the skumogami developed faces, but these were not human faces. Even more terrifying is that some of the skumogami could shift from one shape to another, with each change making the creature even more frightening. By time they reached the forest, all of them had become terrors. And these creatures now hatched a plan of revenge. Who knows how much time passed as they growled and roared to one another, setting their anger into bricks of cold vengeance. And then, that's when they marched down. Down through the woods, back down the mountains, taking any hapless folk down with them. Now, there are tales of monks holding back the monsters with a special chant or a printed scroll with magic words or words of faith, all carefully drawn as a ward. For all others, though, if the Skumogami came upon them, that person was scooped up, dismembered slowly and with great glee, and then finally eaten. The next tale might not seem to fit so neatly into the Wild Hunt frame, but hear me out, or just sit back and have some fun with this really crazy romp. This is a kind of a legend from a legend on top of another legend, and it begins with a tale from one of the First Nations peoples of the Great Northwest, the Cowican tribe. This is a story of how the Cowican people learned to make canoes. The first canoe could fly which was handy because it was made high in the mountains by two orphaned brothers, and the brothers needed to get that canoe down to the ocean to help their people with fishing. 
the next part of the tale comes from France, where it was said that in the town of Poitou there lived a wicked, evil man named Lord Gallery. He was so wicked that he refused to go to church. Instead, Gallery would go hunting. Of all the things he could do instead of going to church, going hunting was possibly the most sacrilegious. And God was not pleased with this. When Gallery died, he was condemned to an eternity of reliving one night. And on this forever night, he was chased by that wild hunt, the pack of galloping horses and howling wolves. He was one more victim of the wild hunt. The point of this story seems fairly obvious. If you attend Mass regularly, don't give in to wants and desires, you won't be led astray by sin, or you won't be chased by the wild hunt. This tale came to be called La Chasse Galerie, or Gallery's Hunt. You might be wondering how these two tales could ever be connected. It happened that in the area of Canada, called in the first colonial days New France, some of the first French settlers hailed from Poitou. Uh, this was sometime around 1535 to about maybe the 1600s. These settlers, loggers, and later fur traders were adventurous, and according to historian Donovan King, the story of La Chasse Galerie probably merged with the Cowican Magic Canoe story during those fur traders' long trips through the Canadian wilderness. If not then, most likely with the settlement of a colony in Montreal Island in the late 1600s. Montreal Island had become a hub for fur trading and for gossip. King says that the strange idea of flying canoes certainly gripped the imagination of the French colonists when, in 1661, following a series of earthquakes that shook New France, a Jesuit priest named Paul Lejeune reported human screams coming from the sky and fiery canoes hurtling through the air above the colony. Maybe the best tale, though, was a version published in 1892 written by Honoré Beaugrand. He was briefly the mayor of Montreal. He published this in Century Magazine, and the little uh, introduction description says, the writer has met many an old voyager who affirmed most positively that he had seen bark canoes traveling in midair full of men paddling and singing away under the protection of Beelzebub on their way from the timber camps of the Ottawa to pay a flying visit to their sweethearts at home. Beaugrand jazzed it up, of course, as any good storyteller will. His tale takes place New Year's Eve, 1858. The characters are loggers out at a lonely camp deep in the woods in the Gatineau region. These poor guys, they're just homesick. They're missing their sweeties and families. Um, but also, they need a night to just kick up their heels and have some fun. They hear about a party in a place called Lava Tree, but that's hundreds of kilometers away. Impossible, except Joe the cook tells the crew that about 35 years before, the logging camp's second boss, a wicked man named 
Baptiste Durand, a man who never went to church. This man, he made a deal with the devil to go to Lavatry to visit his sweetheart. Well, they all know how wicked and also how clever Baptiste Durand is, so this gives credence to the tale. One of the shantymen, though, asks, how is it possible even with the help of the devil? It was Lachasse Galerie. The devil gave Durand a flying canoe, Joe the cook said. That made it possible for the wicked man to get to the village and back in six hours. Joe the cook says, with Lachasse Galerie, we can travel 150 miles an hour. But, he warned, we must not pronounce le nom du bon Dieu, the name of God, during the voyage. And we must be careful not to touch the crosses on steeples when we travel over. Joe the cook figured that as long as they look where they're going, think about what they say before opening their mouths, and avoid drinking alcohol, well, they should be fine. Baptiste Durand is implored to once again call up the devil and tell him of their need to attend this party. Durand agrees. He calls the devil. And, of course, the devil is so helpful, offering them that big flying canoe. In another story, the canoe is said to be, quote, decorated from top to bottom with archaic symbols and a red dye that looked as if it might be human blood. And, on dark nights, the symbols glowed, casting evil red shadows among the trees. And strangest of all, the canoe seemed to whisper to itself in a strange tongue that sounded like the hiss of snakes. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a single New Year's Eve party I'd, I would ever attend that might be worth getting into a canoe like that for. In Bogran's version, Baptiste Durand steers the canoe with wild abandon, swooping over holiday revelers, almost tipping them out, and he's laughing and jeering at the people below and the men in the canoe. Worse, at the party, he drinks too much, even though he was the last one to remind everyone not to drink. The flight home is harrowing. There are crashes and cursing, and then the men actually do fall out of the canoe right at the end. All ends well, though, despite their pact with the devil, with Joe the cook telling readers a trip in a bewitched canoe just isn't worth it. Other versions have variations, though, where the earth opens up at the end and takes the men to hell, or the devil comes to collect them, or there's that has the men doing La Chasse Galerie for eternity as their punishment for all of them cursing and saying the Lord's name, ultimately breaking their pact with the devil. The last tale I want to share functions as more of a warning for the people witnessing this variation of the wild hunt. We've noted many times how these stories adapt to represent the changing worlds of the people who live in them. This is another good example this variant is a ghost rider tale from the American Old West. Now, I want to pause to sketch a little timeline because it's just so fascinating that such culturally different storytellings are happening around each other, around history, if not geographically. This is the Industrial Revolution, which began roughly from the mid-1700s in Great Britain, but quickly spread around Europe, Canada, and the U.S., Usually, when we think of the American Old West, we think of, what, 
the Missouri Compromise, which was 1820, or maybe Samuel Colt's patent for the Colt repeating gun, which was 1836. Out where I live in California, it tends to be right around when John Sutter buys up some 50,000 acres of what was Alta California, a Mexican territory, but would later become Sacramento. Although you could poll any individual and get a different answer, like when I asked my husband, he put the American Old West in the latter 1800s with the celebrity outlaws and celebrity lawmen like Wild Bill Hickok. He also mentioned the beginning of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. That debuted 1883, um, and while successful and memorable as a traveling show, it really became a national sensation at the Chicago World Fair, which was 1893. This is the era in modern history when societies moved from an agrarian and handicraft economy to one dominated by industry and machine manufacturing. Whenever you may believe this time of change begins, whatever events set it off, it's all pretty much agreed by historians that World War I, starting July 1914, changed everything once again. So, all of this is going on at about the same time, but these dates don't mean anything to our wild hunt tale unless you remember that I said Jacob Grimm, in German mythology, published that work in 1835. The folklore is rooted in this constant change of the era, when the Western world went from individuals out in the wilderness to people learning how to coexist in villages and townships and settlements. With the migration of people around the world, the tales migrated, and sometimes parts or most of the tales merged. The European tale of the wild hunt, where a band of riders, maybe led by Woden or some other fierce leader, enforce a moral code on hapless wanderers and evildoers. It feels like a bridge between the Middle Ages, when it potentially started, and the last holdout to industrialization, the American Old West. But this isn't the European wild hunt. This is a cowboy story. And probably the best example of this is that ghost rider frame that takes on the wild hunt feel, the chase, the horses, the demon horses. <laughs> uh, I want to talk now about one variant of this, one that you maybe recognize called Ghost Riders in the Sky, a Cowboy Legend, which is a song. It was written and published in 1948 by Stan Jones. Jones has said that he was inspired by walking out on the plane uh, during a storm and seeing the clouds in the sky. But he also said he was inspired by a story told to him when he was a child. The story was told by a native man who was a ranch hand from Arizona. Some historians, though, think that maybe Jones was inspired by a ghost story that comes from Crosby County, Texas. That story is about a place called Stampede Mesa. There might actually be one or two other inspirations as well. Now, many people have covered this song, 
From Burl Ives to Elvis to Johnny Cash to Willie Nelson, <laughs> there, there are tons of versions of this. If you go onto YouTube and just put the name in, you're going to see all kinds of things. Even Debbie Harry did a cover. Right in the first verse, the wild hunt comes through. The song starts, An old cowboy went riding out one dark and windy day. Upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way. When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw plowed through the ragged sky and up a cloudy draw. This is a pack of demon cattle thundering and crashing toward this cowboy. With their brands on fire, their hooves made of steel, their horns black and shiny, and their hot breath you could feel. And right behind this herd of demon cattle, the cowboy saw the riders coming hard, and he heard their mournful cry. They've come to warn this cowboy to change his wicked ways. And through him, as we listen to this song, this gives us the opportunity to change our <laughs> wicked ways. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a sort of a rhyme of the ancient mariner quality to this idea that hearing the tale or, or the song can put a wicked person back on the path of good. This is good for us right now because we're listening to all of these different versions, right? <laughs> I say whatever tale or lore you most love here as the one year ends and the new year begins, or actually at any time, I hope this episode gave you some joy. Uh, but also remember that high overhead, a lot is going on. <laughs> Veils between worlds may be opening right next to you. And if you're not careful, you just might find yourself smack in the middle of a wild hunt. Thank you for joining me for both part one and part two of They Ride, We Hide, The Wild Hunt. If you liked this episode, please share it and let people know. You can find Lost in the Rabbit Hole on Instagram as Lost in the Rabbit Hole. Uh, and on Twitter as Folktale Pod. And you can listen to this podcast on all major and many minor audio platforms, including Apple Music, Pandora, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. I appreciate you joining me as I begin this podcast journey of mine. And I look forward to many more folktales in the future. I hope you do too. This has been Lost in the Rabbit Hole, the dark side of folktales. Thank you so much for listening. In future episodes, I will explore many other dark, shadowy corners of some of our favorite tales. So please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing. You can also find Lost in the Rabbit Hole on Twitter, on Instagram, or you can visit my webpage at catkeefernewman.org, where I will have updates on all projects that I'm working on. I am Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman. And this was lost in the rabbit hole.